You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, my name is Tanya Pinkins, and I'm the host of the podcast You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. This fall, I have a special treat for you. In honor of my debut feature film, Red Pill, Marissa Lynn Daniels Studio has been hosting weekly conversations with my fellow Broadway colleagues and co-host Sierra Renee about the red pilling of America. These conversations create a safe space for us to talk about the things that are on our mind with an election and a global pandemic So join us for The Red Pilling of America, a spotlight series every Saturday at 5 p.m. or on the Broadway Podcast Network, You Can't Say That, bpn.fm forward slash YCST. Join the conversation. smart. You is important. You is dead. Tanya Pinkin's horror film, Red Pill, brings African-American perspective to progressive movement. We are a majority in this country, and we're going to win the election. Do you know what the red pill is? A red pill is someone who infiltrates a group and then destroys them from the inside. This place is spooky. Some people like to live dangerously. Gas, why are you so jumpy tonight? You know what, guys? I'm gonna go back tomorrow. Did you hear about the creature woman that attacked a father and son hunting down here? I don't see the case. This place creeps me out. We should call the sheriff's office. The only people missing or dead are brown people. They're after all of us. What do we do, Amelia? We die. But we take some of them with us. So I just learned about Clubhouse four days ago. I was just telling Marissa about it. And I opened a room 
so that other people who may be somewhere in the world can hear us as well, because there's no recording there. It's just a live room and people can come in and hear it. So never done it before. I'm a virgin uh, room. So we're going to. I'm gonna, doing that. That sounds perfect. I like that. Cool. I, I spent yeah. the night till like three in the morning. I was in a room called Talk Nerdy to Me. And it was all these AI <laughs> and gamers and neuroscientists talking about things way over my head, but it was fascinating because you can just listen or you can ask, raise your hand and ask to participate, but you can also just listen in. And then there's like a button for leaving quietly, but there's no texting or it's just mm. conversation and you can, so like, we're about to have a conversation. So yeah, that's um, it. your book, Sand Talk, it changed my brain. Very early in the process, someone was uh, telling me a story, a linear story, and I suddenly started seeing it in a new way. I I don't know what you're doing, but it changed my brain and um, just made it possible for me to, I don't know. And And that languaging that you call pattern brain, I realized that that was a more comfortable way for me to talk about something I experienced, which is a kind of, I sometimes quote, no things like this movie, Red Pill, which is what inspired these talks is that I with no things. And when I would tell them about things, people just treat me with contempt. And I, I, I knew how this political thing was going to go down this fall and I made a movie about it <laughs> because people just treated me so contemptuously for even having the idea. And I thought, oh, that's really pattern mine. I'm not I'm not seeing a future or predicting anything. I'm just seeing the patterns that are very obvious to me. So that's I it. would love you to talk more about that. It's just it's-, it's just not magic, is it? It's like I wake up this morning and I see Charlie Pride um, has passed away. And I know that by the end of next week, I'm going to have to be eating starch again. Mm. And it's like, well, how do those two things connect? Um, well, those things connect because uh, Charlie Pride is really big over here in the Aboriginal community, like all over Australia. But um, particularly, you know, in in um, a, a lot of the a lot of remote communities where I have really um, strong, you know, relations and family and all that sort of thing. Uh, that's going to go, um, that's going to really, that's going to, oh my goodness. Like I, I just, I don't want to pick up my phone because I don't want to, like people are going to be really, really upset. So that's, so your local Aboriginal radio stations, they're pretty much three quarters of all the music is just Charlie Pride. Because <laughs> for some reason, everybody likes country music mm. um, except me, but particularly Charlie Pride. That's like the cornerstone of everything. There's even informal rules that between the hours of such and such and such and such, you can only have Charlie Pride. So there's going to be a lot of group, people are going to want to drink. Mm. And so there'll be people who will probably, you know, have like a, you know, like a wake. There's going to be lots of wakes for Charlie Pride. And um, and so, and, and that that's not going to affect me immediately, but by next week, um, when people have run out of money for, you know, because they had to have that wake, they, there's not enough money. They're going to run out of money for, um, for you know, food and, and nappies for the babies and stuff like that. And then they're all going to call me. And I know that next week it's going to cost me at least $500 just in nappies. And I'm not going to be able to eat 
protein <laughs> for the next month. I'm going to have to start eating noodles and rice again, um, you know, which is going to affect my performance. And it's, so it's, you know, it's um, Charlie Pride is going to ruin my bowel movements for the next two months. Anyway. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> But that's my selfish pattern. That's if I just look at my life. But I guess the book isn't about that. That's about turning around the other way and looking out at the world, um, not just looking inwards at the subjective and local, but turning that gaze out and seeing what falls out of it. Yeah. And I guess like you, when I first, because it was like, God, oh, nearly a couple of years ago now, um, I put the book out and, and when it was getting published, you know, the reaction from a lot of people was, oh, yeah, Tyson, I don't think things are that bad. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's I think you've gone, you know, the sky is falling. You're a bit chicken little. I mm-hmm. think you're overestimating the, the extent of the crisis in the world. You know, human ingenuity will be fine. Um, <laughs> and, you know, not that many sold. And then all of a sudden the world's on fire and everybody's like <laughs> grabbing that book and reading it and going, wow, this gives us hope. So it's gone so far the other way. What people thought was pessimism before, they think it's optimism now. And I guess like you, you you know, you suddenly come off like a genius, but it's really just everybody knows this stuff. Well, Um, available for them to see, they just don't want to see it or they don't want to face it as a possibility. I was particularly taken with your whole concept that here in these, what we you call domesticated cultures, that we get to pretend we're nonviolent and we're so holier than thou and sit in judgment, but that we export our violence and that our violence is evidenced in our phones and our, you know, the, we our seafood, our gas. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's evidenced in it, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, it's just... It's just there. It's in these little safe, uh, you know, anywhere where you're not experiencing sort of violence, you know, in in the world as it is. It's a world that's really set up on violence and a very violent system. If you're not experiencing it, then you're, um, yeah, you're certainly benefiting from it. Um, Yeah, but basically that's about, that's what civilizations do. They like, um, they outsource their entropy so their decay, that they outsource that to other places. You know, violence, incredible violence has to be done in order to confer this much privilege. Mm. Um, and then they, they send that out, out elsewhere. And people, people they, even now COVID, you see people going, you know, oh, yeah, we're all, uh, I hear it all the time. Yeah, humans right now, we're all just, uh, you know, in our rooms uh, on our laptops and we're, we're having to work from home. <laughs> it's the tiniest percentage of the population of the world are doing that, you know, and, um, you know, so you've got people, you know, doing coaching and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the uh, people like, you know, Jordan Peterson and all those are getting up there and, and making millions of dollars by cleaning, telling people to clean their room. Like, wow, what an idea. Like um, you get your life together. Just, Clean your room. Start with that, eh? And then, um, yeah. But it's this assumption that everyone has their own room. Mm. I've never had my own room. Like, I I don't know what that would be like to have my own room, you know? Um, Yeah. 
I mean, I've got, I wake up this morning, there's bloody 12, 13 people in my house. Tomorrow there'll be five. It's, you know, these things uh, shift around, but you certainly don't get to have your own room like most of the people on the planet. So it's yeah. these little bubbles. And, and I don't know, privilege is probably not the right word. It just it kind of makes it sound like, I don't know, it's not, it's not the right word for what it is. Well, I consider that it's not just privilege. It's a it's a grand sort of theft, and mm -hmm. this just this invisibility of these little these little safe uh, havens that are not very safe. Like they're they're going to burn soon. Right. Yeah. My quote: uh, the word privilege like becomes this dual edged sword because for me it was a privilege to grow up with five generations under one roof. Yeah. That I knew, you know, I saw birth and death in under my roof. And so there's a a way of being and a connection to before me and beyond me that my own children don't have. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Look, I and and you try to put your finger on it, and there's lots of I guess in in sort of Aboriginal ways of looking um uh sort of looking at the world and, and doing inquiry into things is that when new knowledge comes in you, you've got to get to the foundational story of that new knowledge like you really look deeply at that and where is that coming from so what's the story for this and then that has to sort of come in you know ritually through everything that you do and you work with that and figure it out and then you go from there and i guess um I don't know. I think the foundational story of this thing we're we're calling privilege is a um, <clears throat> it's a it's a wrong definition of of belonging. And and because so that affects all your relations, your relationship with people, uh, particularly with the people you fuck, and and but but with the relationship with every single human and non-human entity in the world, because belonging in this weird anglosphere culture that's all over the world belonging means um owning something mm -hmm. so there's an ownership to that so even with your most closest your closest intimate partner that's about even even the, at the at the deepest and tenderest feelings in you that is about ownership so you you that person belongs to you but that when we say this in my culture, when we say, you know, belonging, who do you belong to? Or like, you know, I belong to her or, you know, um, so I'll say like, uh, I say all the time, like, oh, my woman, such and such, you know, that's, that's, that's my woman. And, and people like, they recoil, like, you can't say that. That's like, <laughs> you misogynist, you know, you think you own that woman. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, that's, that's my woman, you know. And well, I, if I say she if she belongs to me, then that's that doesn't mean I own her. <laughs> Although we use the word own with the same thing. That means that we're in relation. And that means I can't do anything, you know, without it lining up with her first. You know, it has to go through a filter of us two, the two of us. So we belong, we belong together. We're a pair, that's the central pair of my life. And uh, and that's who I am. Because who you are and all your knowledge is is not in you; it's in your relationships, you know, with other people, but also particularly with place. Places are sentient, so you're in relation to them, and that knowledge sits in that relation. But then all the human and non-human things all around you. 
So this idea of belonging, that's a human idea. That's not unique to Aboriginal culture. That's how we're supposed to all be, mm. you know. But it's this silly sort of uh, tinkered system that's been placed on the top, you know, for a few people to think that they're greater than everyone else. You know, this this other system's been placed on top and we all have to live by it, even in our intimate relations. We have to think that belonging means um, owning, holding, keeping, trapping something. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've always known in an intuitive way that trees and rocks are sentient beings like rocks are in a different time way than we are. They move, they travel, they, I just known that. And I have tree families all over the world. I can come into a town at midnight and it's pitch black and I will be like, my family's over there. I've got to go and find. Mm-hmm. So I was deeply. Um, and I've also felt like, you know, if there's a devil, it's God's devil. So when you talked about, um, the greatest sin or the devil or Lucifer being the belief that you are above anything that struck me very strongly because um, I, I, I don't feel like it's a sinful thing for me to look at anyone anywhere and feel like there, but the grace of, you know, this goddess universe go, I, I could be anything that anyone is. I could be it. And I, I walk in my life that way. So it was, a resonant thing because that's not, I live in New York city. So, you know, that is not a philosophy of New York city. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) It's, it's funny, isn't it? Um, So we, we kind of accept, we accept this system. Uh, We accept a a system of structural inequality uh, because we, we hope that we might climb within that. You know, that we might, because we all, all of us have swallowed that not red pill. You know, we've swallowed that pill of, yeah, I'm, I, I think I'm, you know, I'm greater than, I'm better than other people. Like, I, I wish everybody knew this. If people could just see, you know, how great I am. And so we, you know, we think, ah, oh. so, so we let them do this to us. We let them do it to us because we know that we might have a chance to do the same. Mm. And so off we go. And I guess as we go through the conversation, I wouldn't mind talking about like what structural inequality really is. Tell us. Because I don't think most of the left even understands what the hell they're talking about when they say structural inequality. What is it? Oh, what now? Ah, so, okay. It's not, 
okay, like racism, prejudice, all this stuff, that's not something that's inside of us. Like I said before, knowledge is, is in our relations, you know, outside of us anyway. There's not much inside you at all. There's certainly not evil in there, you know. Um, so all this uh, prejudice, racism, etc. we keep thinking that it's a problem of a few bad apples, that there's just there's these racists out there, and if we could just get rid of them or if we could just re-educate them, then that, that inequality would go away. And so even when we talk about systemic equality, we talk about it in terms of, well, there are people in positions of power. There are people in powerful positions, you know, all the way through the administration of this nation. And, um, and that's what makes structural inequality. No, it's not. Well, what is it? So racism is just an, a, a function of a growth-based economy. Mm. Okay, so if you have a growth-based economy, like just read the first chapter of any economics handbook and you'll go, ah, oh, okay, I see it. You know, So basically nothing in a growth-based economy can have a price unless it's limitable and excludable. So you have to be able to make sure that, that what you're selling can't be abundant. It's got to be scarce. So you have to limit it and you have to be able to exclude some people from having it because then it will have value to the other people who are greater than that. So you need at least 50% of your people, of your population at any time to be in lower castes. And it doesn't really matter who they are, but it, it might make it easier to police that and keep them there if you pick you know, ones that all have one arbitrary characteristic or something. You know. Um, and basically that's all it is. You need... Basically, it's it's the law of supply and demand, and you've heard of that, right? I have heard a little bit about the law of supply so, and demand. Yeah, and you, you you must keep hearing about this GDP that that has to keep growing every year forever, otherwise the entire economy will collapse. Yeah, but there's the GDP. If the GDP stops growing, it's a recession. If it goes backwards, it's a depression. You know, basically the way that works is that you there has to be more demand than supply. In order for the economy to grow, mm. you've got to have more demand than supply. So that means there needs to be, there has to be more people needing shit mm-hmm. than there are people getting shit. So there's only so much shit that you can make, and there's so many people, but and there has to be quite a lot of them missing out on it in order for any of that to have value. But what about in some order of the, for the artists, economy to grow? What about some? So, of the- Artists now who are starting to give away their their product, like artists are starting to like, here I'm giving it away. How does that affect yeah, well that, the economy? Uh, well, I, I think um, I hope that goes everywhere. That's a huge revolution because it's funny. There's two there's two things taken um, that really make all this system work. Um, uh, one of them's art, and <laughs> strangely enough. Because art, I mean, for a start, you look at any indigenous language, you won't find a word for art. Mm. No, art doesn't exist as a separate thing. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. That's how we make meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. That's how we that's how we make knowledge. That's how we express. That's how we connect with spirit every day of our lives. Every single one of us is a genius artist. Mm-hmm. But you know what I said about limitability and excludability? Yeah. No, you have to, like shame everybody and make sure that everyone's policing each other and telling each other, don't give up your day job. If they try and draw a nice picture, you know, (laughs) you're not an artist. 
No, that's that special people. So they, we choose. Oh my God, they screaming out there. Um, Life is so out. they choose. They choose a few people to elevate and go. Well, these are the artists, and they pay them heaps of money, and then they have a few stragglers like who are hoping to climb that ladder. And, you know, and then we've all got to worship these ones at the top of the pyramid, making the art and yeah, stuff that basically what it's for is that create art is capital for rich people. Exactly. And it's a fake. So, market. Yeah. A fake and the market. margins and, and th- there's nothing creative about centers of privilege. So, you know, where, where all the wealth goes, those people can't create anything because they've got nothing. They're not in the world. They're not in struggle. They're not in life. So you've got to go to the margins and either steal from people at the margins, you know, <laughs> you know, or you've got to, you know, elevate a couple of individuals from the margins in order to have anything coming through. So most of the fashion in the world comes from, you know, African Americans. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that, that's what drives the fashion industry. It's all basically plundered knowledge, you know, from people who have very innovative, um, you know, ways of, of, of adorning themselves because they're, they're just living in, you know, <laughs> horror every day so you got to be creative you know yeah. people at the center can't create those things so all art etc it, it comes and all creativity comes from the margins um and basically that becomes capital you know for the for the rich and capital is the key because then you come to the other thing um that makes the whole thing work which is land so two-thirds of the capital in the world is land and it hasn't always been thus you know mortgages were only invented a relatively short period of time ago and they were invented as a legal trick to to get uh, land off indians mm-hmm. on big island over there mm-hmm. you know, it was invented as a legal trick to do that and it worked so well they decided to just survey every inch of the planet and bring everyone under that so you have uh land is no longer land land is something that you can borrow against and enclose and that can be foreclosed against and you hold it and it's capital. And you can borrow into infinity against that if you hold it. Yeah, but in order to do that and enclose it, you have to remove the people from the land. And that's only been happening for a couple of centuries. All the people have to be removed from the land. A hundred years ago, most of the people on the planet were still living on the land. Mm. That was only a hundred years ago. And this idea of nations, that was only invented a century ago. So they had to pull everybody off the land and put everybody into these urban or rural town kind of environments, um, metropolitan environments, and remove them from the land. And the land is what gives you your art. It what It's what gives you your meaning. It's what gives you your shelter. It's what gives you your food, your sustenance, everything. It gives you that for free. But they've enclosed that and turned it into capital for the basis of this financial system. So we can't have access to that. If we want to have access to the things we used to get from the land for free, Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to have that, then we have to sell a third of our life to, um, you know, state and corporate. It's the the state and the economy is what provides the things for us now that land used to give us for free. But you've got to sell a third of your life, your your work, your labor, in order to get that. In order to get um, what was given to you by yeah, for free. Exactly, and in a really bad form, you know. Like, like, you know, starch is not a good thing to eat too much of, and that's pretty much all most of us can afford <laughs> is a lot of starch. So we get a pale shadow of what the land used to give us for free, and we're all locked up, and we're all like just feedlot pigs. 
and we need to get out. I love what you said about art as something that we do. That was something I experienced when I was in Bali. And I, I noticed that the people, the way they made a bag for the, to carry the thing you bought away, like everything they made was a piece of art. Art was what they breathed and yeah. they didn't even put a value on it. It was just how they did things. So you'd go into stores and there wouldn't be prices. Cause it's like, well, whatever you think it's worth. Cause I was going to do it this good anyway. <laughs> so if it's worth <laughs> That's it. for you, great. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be making another one tomorrow because <laughs> right. that's what I do. You know? right. Yeah. And then, so that that doesn't work in a market because we have to make it exclusive. We you got only four of these because we want to sell it for a million dollars. Yeah, and now you can't keep on living your life and doing what you just do naturally because we've now turned your life yeah. into a commodity. Well, if you look at uh, so you look at weaving in Indonesia, and you look at weaving just you know a few hundred k's away, kilometers away, you know weaving in an Aboriginal community. If you uh, if you went to Indonesia and you killed 95% of all the people there and there was, so there was only a few hundred weavers left, then that would be worth something. Because everything they weaved would be so, so well, scarce. It, it would be rare and exclusive. And once it's rare and exclusive, you're okay. So, you know, you go a few hundred kilometers away to where people are doing the same thing in the North of Australia, um, and kind of a lot of time, very similar styles with the weaving and you know, making baskets. That basket um, is worth quite a bit. You know, you're going to pay $100 for that basket um, from an Aboriginal community, you know, because it's rare. It, it's very rare. But if you go to Indonesia, you know, there must be a million of those being produced a day <laughs> over there. So, yeah. Um, they, they, they're the same quality of basket, but one of them's worth 50 cents and one of them's worth $100. But it's worth that based on this this growth-based economy, which requires yeah. this invention of scarce. It requires that things must be scarce and rare. It requires that you kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Right. In, or, in order for that golden egg to be worth anything. Mm. Yeah. It's a terrible thing. So, And that's why, I mean, you know... You, you can't have you can't have a prison industrial complex in place that that's grounded in that growth based economy, and then and just somehow tweak that and make it fairer. You can't just like put you can't just go ah oh, well ah oh, Black Lives Matter because I've got that bumper sticker, you know ah oh, oh, Amazon's putting Black Lives Matter poster up on its wall there, um, there that's that's all right now that's going to be fair. Uh, we're going to make sure that you know, you know, everybody has equal access to this and that, and we're going to feel better about it. But it's just, um, you know, you can't have equality in in a growth based economic system. So no, how you can't tweak it. You can't tweak it. Or okay, if you want to be so basically, um, so if I don't know, let's say my community, if we wanted to be equal with the rest of the Australian community, we'd have to import um, a group of people from somewhere else and put them beneath us <laughs> and they would have to take our place. Then we could go up. Um, I don't know if you, you, you try, try putting all this stuff on a bell curve and mm -hmm. tweak the stats as much as you can. And you'll find that you can't close those gaps statistically, mathematically in any other way. It, it doesn't work in this, in this system of metrics that we have. The maths doesn't work. 
So what do we after have? equality? So you you have to end growth basically. You have to end the idea of growth based economies and go to a, a a different a completely different economic system if you want people to be equal. You can't make a dog a vegan. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins, and I would love to hear from you. You can text me at 917-724-8998. Tell me what you're up to, and I'll let you know what I'm up to. Text me, 917-724-8998. Let's keep in touch. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.